Welcome to Unity of Fairfax, a positive path for spiritual living and spiritual center for education, practice, and service in Northern Virginia. We hope you find inspiration in this week's message. So this week I'm taking a one-week departure from my series of talks based on the class Masterclass Lessons by Ernest Wilson to address the federal holiday that honors the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But next week we will return to the series and address the idea of receiving. And if you haven't already downloaded to your electronic device or in paper a copy of the text, you can do so for free at truthunity.net. So, what do you think of? What image comes to mind when you think about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King? You think about the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott, the 1963 March on Washington, the 1964 Nobel Peace Prize, the 1965 March on Selma, or maybe you think about the 30 times he was arrested, or maybe you think about a particular speech or a sermon he gave or an interview, or maybe you think about the surveillance of him by the FBI, or maybe his assassination in Memphis in 1968. President Reagan signed the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. holiday into law in 1983, and it was first officially observed three years later, in 1986. However, some states initially resisted the holiday, or they combined it with something else, or called it something else. But in 2000, it was finally officially observed in all 50 states for the first time. It's easy, well, it's easy for some, easier for some than others, to look back over 50 years ago and hold an idealized image of the man and his efforts to live in a world in which, as he said, his children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but rather the content of the character. Well, Dr. King, like all of us, had flaws. He incarnated in human form, and some of them were large. But he also had a vision fueled by his deep and abiding faith that kept him going through dark and very dangerous times, kept him going even though he knew there were innumerable threats on his life and those of people around him. And it was one of those threats that did indeed take his life on April 4th. 1968. In his final speech given on April 3rd, 1968, in support of striking sanitation workers in Memphis, he closed with these words. He said, like anybody, I would love to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. 
I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Prescient words. He could not have known what would happen the next day. But what is this promised land that he referenced? Throughout his life and his ministry, he described it in many ways, but essentially it's the same as the vision statement we hold here at Unity of Fairfax, our vision for the world, which says, centered in divine love, we envision a world awakened to peace, abundance, and respect for all creation. Reminds me of the words he used in his Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech. Still, I wonder how he would address the current issues of our day as he addressed the issues of his day, some of which apparently are the same. I wonder how he would be viewed today. I wonder what actions he would say we should take to establish the promised land right here and right now. And I wonder how well those actions would be received. Pulitzer Prize winning author Robin Given suggested answers to these very questions in her editorial in the Washington Post on January 12th, just this past week, when she said, King was only 39 years old when he died. And while he was more liberal than radical, it's hard to imagine that he would be so revered if he were a 30-something activist today. A black man marching in the streets and advocating for fair wages, voting rights, racial justice, and a more equitable form of capitalism. He and his fellow protesters would likely be blamed for stirring the pot and creating upheaval in places where everything was just fine before they showed up spouting their un-American ideas, which is precisely what happened in his day. Ms. Given went on and said in the same essay, Everyone lays claim to King's legacy with such certitude that if as many people marched alongside him in the 1960s as said they did, there would have been virtually no one standing on the sidelines wielding batons and casting aspersions. The dream of which King spoke would be a reality. And the January holiday in his honor would be a celebration of the American experiment's completion rather than a reminder of a promise yet to be fulfilled. And then she goes on and says, but we like our history pretty. And sometimes history is pretty. And sometimes it's not. History is neither for or against us. It just is. However, as recent public discourse has shown, candid discussion of American history is fraught with angst, avoidance, and politicization. politicalization. It doesn't have to be that way. Dr. King once famously said, 
Nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. It was from a talk he gave in 1964. Unfortunately, a cursory reading of current news headlines would seem to indicate that sincere ignorance and conscious stupidity are just as live and well now as they were in Dr. King's time. The misinformation, disinformation, and denial of both the pandemic and the January 6th insurrection are two examples of the tenacity of this level of consciousness. However, lest any one of us come to think too highly of ourselves or too lowly of others, Dr. Keene warned everyone that there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. And when we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. Which means that any of us, and maybe all of us at some point in our lives, has or could fall into the abyss of sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. After all, every enemy is a potential friend. We must always remember that. Just as we must remember, there is nothing helpful or productive about hatred. So how does the holiday honoring Dr. King relate to the truth principles that we teach at Unity? <laughs> My question is, well, how much time do you have? Central to all New Thought teaching is the importance of knowing the truth about ourselves and everyone else. And that truth is that each and every person is an individualized expression of the creative magnificence of that which we call God. Too often, though, people, and I'm using the word people in the very general sense, don't know that this is the truth of themselves. They've either never had heard it or it's a brand new concept. Or if they have been told that, then they either don't believe it because they've been taught something else, or they don't believe it because, well, that's just simply too good to be true. Or if they have heard this concept, they want to believe it, but owing to their personal histories, don't say how that could possibly be true. If you only knew the things I've said and done. Or owing to the current state of their addictions, don't think it could ever be true. But one thing that Dr. King, uh, Truth King was very keen on, and that was telling the truth. Not to shame or blame, but to he reveal and heal. Tell the truth, not to shame or blame, but to reveal and heal. He said, on some positions, cowardice asks the question, is it expedient? And then expedience comes along and asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? Conscience asks the question, is it right? Because there comes a time when one must take the position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular. But he must do it because his conscience tells him it is right. 
from 1968. Is it right? Is it true? We must tell the truth if we wish to heal from the past. We can't deny it. We must tell the truth if we want to transform the present. We have to say what the facts are. And we must tell the truth if we want a better and brighter future. It's as true on the collective level as it is on the very personal level. Case in point, the 12 steps as practiced by AA, Al-Anon, and all the other programs of 12-step recovery. You see, in those programs, whose promise is the restoration of sanity, health, well-being, you name it, one must do a searching and fearless moral inventory and then share it with somebody else. Those are steps four and five. And the purpose is not to convict the person doing the inventory. The purpose is to free the person doing the inventory. Free them from the mistakes and errors of thought and judgment and action that have come before and might still be in play. Freedom, liberation, peace of mind, sanity. And it's just as important collectively. Communities and even nations have engaged in this healing and transforming work. Over 50 nations around the world have impaneled truth and reconciliation commissions to help recover from the past, the painful past. And one of the most famous is the South African Truth and Reconciliation Creation Commission created at the end of apartheid that was chaired by 1984 Nobel Peace Prize winner, the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And even in the unity movement, we have a, a process to heal our past. It's called healing our past, creating our future. It's a conflict resolution process. Fortunately, we haven't needed it here at Unity of Fairfax. But there's a rub. There's a problem with all of this good intentions, isn't there? And the rub is this. Not everyone wants to change or transform. The very idea is anathema to individuals who like their lives just as they are. And collectively, the idea of social transformation is anathema to various groups for it would seem to portend a loss of power, prestige, and position. What all this talk of change and transformation that we in unity love points to for many folks, and even ourselves, if we're willing to admit it, is a fear on the individual level, my ego, that is my limited little self, sense of self, doesn't want to change. Because if it changes, it dies. Therefore, I must resist. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever resisted a change in your life, because it means you'll have to be different. And sometimes a change means I don't know how to be that other person or whatever that situation is. So I'll just resist and keep things the way they are because I feel safe here. And we see this on the collective with groups. Because if there is social change, it is possible that my group won't be in charge anymore. My group won't have all the power. My group will have to share in the good. Therefore, my group will die. 
Have you ever seen this? You ever watch a power grab anywhere around the world or even our own country or homeowners association, stuff like that? American theologian Leonard Sweet once said, what is the difference between a living thing and a dead thing? In the medical world, one of the definitions of death is a body that does not change. Change is life. Stagnation is death. If you don't change, you die. It's that simple, and it is that scary. So why all this talk of change and social history and personal inventories in church? Because we shine the light on the past and the present so that we may enlighten the future. Because we are creating the future right now with every thought, with every action, with every feeling. And the question before us is what kind of future do we want? Do we want the promised land metaphorically overflowing with milk and honey for everyone or not? Or do we want dystopia? The choice is ours. The choice is always ours. Because I want a bright future. I want to live. No, that's not right. I want to thrive. And I want everyone to thrive. People I know, people I don't know, people I like, people I don't like. I want everyone to be happy. I want everybody to fully express their gifts and their talents. I want everyone to be at peace as this beautiful meditation that Reverend Ron led us in today, holding this vision for what is possible because it is possible. Because there is no shortage of any good thing on this planet. There's more than enough good to go around. We don't have to hoard. We don't have to steal. We don't have to take. If we loved one another more fully and completely, some of these issues that are on the table today, we wouldn't even have. But that fear of them or not having enough creeps in and takes over and is given fuel unless we don't give it fuel. You see, I envision this promised land as a real possibility. We have a lot of it already. The work isn't done yet. That's why I do the work I do, inviting this vision into demonstration. That's what our unity movement is about, and I believe that's how I interpret the life and the legacy of Dr. King. He used his foundation in faith. Remember, he was a minister first. He used his foundation in faith to do the work of building a world that works for everyone. And that work wasn't always popular. But that work included preaching and organizing and fundraising and marching and getting arrested and calling out hypocrisy and systemic inequalities and being the recipient of all manner of threats and hate speech because he held a vision of a world that works for everyone. Because he told the truth about the disparities in the world. Every reformer of every age and in every country encounters pushback. It wasn't just him. It wasn't our civil rights movement, women's rights movement, gay rights movement, indigenous rights movement, disability rights movement. Every reformer in every age encounters pushback. 
And that happens for us individually. You ever do an effort at self-reform? Think you're going to lose some weight, start a diet, an exercise program, savings plan? Is there something within you that resists any one of those things? Of course. So we just recognize these energies of opposition exist. So what we're talking about ultimately isn't about a particular group of people or a particular individual owing to the universal nature of pushback. But what we are talking about are personal habits and behaviors and social systems and paradigms. These are the things that resist change. And these are creations of the individual and collective psyche. And why is there resistance? Because we like things the way they are, because we feel safe, because this maintains power structures, because this keeps certain groups wealthy. I mean, whatever. It just happens. So put it another way. It is human nature that separates and divides. It is Christ consciousness that unites and makes whole. It is human nature that separates and divides and Christ consciousness that unites and makes whole, which is why our mission statement here at Unity of Fairfax is to awaken the Christ in each person, to awaken up that divine idea that we are better off together, that we were made for each other. And as Dr. King said in his 1964 speech, no man is an island, no person is an island. We are all living in an interconnected web of mutuality. We're wise to recognize that that is a gift and not a punishment. In their work on societal transformation, Mahatma Gandhi, Archbishop Tutu, and Dr. King all affirmed over and over and over again the utter necessity of being grounded in divine love, centered in divine love, as our vision statement says, when doing the work. It's possible they got this idea from somebody else because it seems to me I read once and it was all in red letters, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It was Matthew 5, verse 44. Jesus and those who grounded their life's work in love and all those who followed were adamant on this point as well. There's no way that the promised land or the beloved community or the sangha or a world that works for everybody cannot exist unless it has divine love at its foundation. And so to that point, I'll close with a few of Dr. King's words from his sermon entitled, Loving Your Enemies, that he presented at the Detroit Council of Churches in 1961. He said, The other thing we must do in order to love the enemy neighbor is this. We must seek at all times to win his friendship and understanding rather than to defeat or humiliate him. There may come a time when it, it will be possible for you to humiliate or defeat your worst enemy. But in order to love your enemy, you must not do it. For in the final analysis, love means understanding goodwill for all men and a refusal to defeat 
any individual. And somehow love makes it possible for you to place your vision and to center your activity on the evil system and not the individual enemy who may be caught up in that system. And so you set out to defeat segregation, but not the segregationist. You set out to defeat the evil system of communism and not the communist. And there's a great deal of difference there. And there must be an act of love for the individuals who may be caught up in an evil, unjust system while we continue to work passionately and unrelentingly to do away with the system itself. End quote. There is still much work to be done on the path to the promised land. And we're doing it. And let us to continue to honor his life and his legacy by doing it passionately and lovingly. Peace be with you and namaste. Thank you for tuning into Unity of Fairfax podcast. You're welcome to join us live in Oakton, Virginia, every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Or view our live stream services from our website at unityoffairfax.org. We appreciate our donations to support this podcast to make our message of positive, practical spirituality more accessible to all. See you next time.